This episode of POMCAST is sponsored by Shalimar. Shalimar Yarns is a hand-dye yarn company committed to the handcraftsmanship of luxury yarns and colourways. Their products can be found in local yarn shops, select online retailers and directly through Shalimar updates. The Shalimar journey began in 2007 with a partnership with their very first yarn mill. Since then, Shalimar has always worked with custom-milled yarns, a broad range of exclusive and exceptional weights and luxury fibres, designed to exacting specifications of beauty, versatility and outstanding hand. These luxury bases are then hand-dyed in their unique and identifiable colour palette, developed as repeatable, consistent colourways. Beauty, wearability, versatility. Shalimar Yarns. Hi and welcome to POMCAST. This is the podcast brought to you by Pom Pom Quarterly, which is a fun knitting magazine if you didn't already know. I'm Sophie Scott and I'm joined by Lydia Gluck. Hi Sophie! Do you like that show theme tune introduction? Of course I did. So we've been at Edinburgh Yarn Festival this weekend, which is pretty damn fun. It was a lot of fun, just got back yesterday. How are you feeling? Pretty good, lots of uh, like knitting time on the train. Yeah, so this was my first time at Edinburgh Yarn Festival, and my first time in Edinburgh. And even though I'm trained for these uh, knitting events, you know, I've spent my time in the the wool mines, forging away for the skeins, (laughs) bringing them out to the surface, (laughs) and, you know, I was overwhelmed. Yeah, it was uh, was quite an overwhelming weekend, really. Not just in a good way. Yes, yeah. But I think I got there off the train, having got up very early, and then arrived at the corn exchange where the wool is exchanged mm-hmm. and then felt a little bit like, oh my word, there's a lot <laughs> of people, a lot of yarn. Yeah, it was kind of a, a who's who of the knitting crowd. There was mm. a lot of international folks who'd come. A lot of owls. Tell the owl joke. Oh, okay. This, this was relevant to what we were discussing before this podcast, but <laughs> why do owls, why don't owls fall in love when it's raining. Why? Because it's too wet to woo. <laughs> too wet to woo. That's just what we do to warm up with all these podcast guys, you know. Tell each other fun jokes. It's a laugh a minute. <laughs> um, but yes, Edinburgh Yarn Festival was excellent. The weather was nice out here. I didn't really get outside the corn exchange much. The weather was incredible. I was out on the Saturday mm-hmm. and went to climb Arthur's Seat, which I kept calling Edinburgh's Seat, which I'm sure people would understand. Um, what is it? It's a big mountain you can climb up and you get to the top, you're like, ah, oh, Arthur's sat here. <laughs> and I said, let's do this. You know, we just had, before we had lunch. And I was like, yeah, no, it'll be easy. Let's climb up. And then we were constantly like stripping down like wool coats and hats and scarves <laughs> and, you know, various knitted accessories. And I was like, damn, this is a lot harder and hotter than I thought it was going to be. But we got to the top and it's very nice. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and I spent um, a couple of days along with Amy at the Pom Pom booth, um, meeting lots of lovely people who came to say hello and to buy their magazines and books, which was very exciting, and got to catch up with various uh, lovely knit folk um, who were there, including Rachel Coopy, Verity of Bar Ram U, Sonia from Blacker Yarns was there. There were many, many designers, of course, who were teaching or just visiting variously including Bristol Ivy, Diana Waller, Kirsten Kapoor was there, Thea Coleman. Amazing people. Lots of Amazing fun Amazing yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, all the lovely people who visited who I already mentioned, but they were great too. Um, I think one of the, I think we've said this before with many a festival, and it's the same with Edinburgh, when you, we sit in a room talking about knitting, mm-hmm. and although we're sort of within the knitting community of London or whatever, it makes such a difference, and I'm sure... If you're listening at home and you're within your your local yarn shop or wherever you are, and then you kind of get together with other knitters, and you realise like, yes, you're people, you're inspired by the same things, you love these things as well. It's amazing to kind of get in that community, the community, yes, <laughs> of knitty people, and how, how lovely and in- inspiring it is. It kind of gives a boost and a refresh, you know. Yeah, and and again, things we've said before, but just how kind of encouraging everyone is and how friendly and how kind. And actually, you weren't there on the Saturday, but somebody brought us mini eggs again. What? I missed out on that. And I wrote their name down, but I have now lost the scrap of paper on which I wrote their name. So I apologise. Very kind fellow knitter. Um, You can um, identify yourself on Ravelry. 
please, <laughs> so that I can thank you using your name. That would be delightful. And thank you very, very much because that did help uh, to get us through the pack down on Saturday, which was epic, <laughs> as they always are. Um, did you get any special treats for yourself while you were there? I think you'll find I did. Yeah? Yep. I treated myself to some of Rachel Atkinson's yarn, which she had been working with John Arbon on. Um, under the lovely name Daughter of a Shepherd, because she is one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you haven't been following um, Rachel's story of an Instagram and her blog, uh, she's taken some fleeces that her dad had lying around for quite a while, actually, because mm. he couldn't really get the price for the wool. There's whole issues behind that, very interesting on her blog. But yeah, amazing yarn. It smelt so sheepy. Yeah, it was oh. beautiful. She was sharing a stand with Anna Maltz, who is, of course, pom-pom buddy supreme. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And also, there were another couple of people who had, or um, designers who have their own yarns now. So Isolde, Isolde's yarn was there. Did you get some of that? I did. How do you rate it? I rate it very high. I mean, I haven't knit with it yet. Okay. It's a lovely sport weight um, in a kind of pale neutral. It's kind of a warm grey almost, mm, Nice. I would say, because it's not too silvery. It's got like a little bit of warmth to it, sport weight. I just got a skein. I thought I'd make a nice hat with that. Gorgeous. And uh, Kate Davies, of course, has a yarn, whose name I can't pronounce. <laughs> but um, that was exciting. And it's a very exciting thing that's happening, I think, with so much of the resurgence of, of well, yeah, like local yarns or British yarns, mm -hmm. since we are in Britain, the local yarns are British. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, this whole movement, I think if you go into it, there's like the movement of food and where people get their food from. And then it's kind of translated over into the knitting world. So it's interesting to see, especially at places like this, where people are like so knowledgeable and mm. so enthusiastic so interesting yeah. times yeah yeah so it was a lovely weekend and thanks again to everybody who came and said hello and brought us snacks <laughs> i was like i should really start just talking about other stuff i want yes. <laughs> a pony yeah an infinite supply of twiglets i mean any of those things <laughs> but no seriously thank you everybody and um thanks of course to louise who was in charge of podcast lounge the mm -hmm. um, wonderful woman behind Knit British Podcast. Check her out. And also thanks to Mika and Joe, who are the lovely ladies who organised the show, who were amazing in their enthusiasm and their patience. And on the day, just like, whenever I felt there was a problem, I somehow Mika would appear at the same <laughs> moment. I was just thinking, like, almost forming the question on my lips on who should I sort this out with? And she'd be like, hi, what do you need? And then, like, reveal a curtain of something that I needed behind it. And, Amazing. She had like a spidey sense. Amazing skill. <laughs> like both her and Joe, just amazing ladies. So huge thanks to those for putting on an amazing festival. Yeah, and uh, we look forward to being there again in a whole year's time. Yeah. Countdown <laughs> begins now, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
knitting deity doing it all <laughs> with all the arms yeah exactly there's oh. a lot of metaphors going on there yes i know we're we're like uh the metaphors are strong today yeah. <laughs> yep so that was um and she's right i guess that doesn't work for i mean it's the kind of thing that like you know you probably should be yeah, doing. yeah there we go i think it's good advice definitely. oh totally yeah so we respect your um you're better than us, basically. We're just going to come out and say it. She does You're say, better than us. She does say it's not easy and she's in a perpetual state of planning my next project. But it works for her, so that's that's good. Yeah, Kudos. so hopefully there'll be someone out there who that will also inspire to... Or someone else who's going like, yes, one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we've also got uh, Kilter Craft, who is one of our fabulous moderators on the um, Pom Pom group. Shout out to her. She says... Um, I sometimes start a new project, but only give myself time to work on the exciting new project once I've done a certain amount of the older gloomy one. So this is interesting. It's almost taking on the monogamous kind of relationship style, but you're giving yeah. yourself treats at the, at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of like um, self-regulating reward system. Yeah. I guess it's a bit like when... Um, if you don't want to do something, I don't know, maybe like do the washing up. Mm -hmm. You do the washing up, you're like, once I've done the washing up, I'm allowed to eat a chocolate bar. Or once I've done the washing up, I'm allowed to do some knitting or whatever it is that your treat is. So it's like, I'll do the thing I'm not as keen on and then I get a special treat. One of the things I try and remind myself of, which is a good tip for life, not just for knitting, is if you don't want to do a thing, you have to tell yourself, actually, you don't want to do it because it's easy. Ah. Ah. Okay, side note. Anyway. <laughs> but I think that that is uh, a good, for those of us who are not capable of monogamy, we're not as evolved, um, <laughs> we, um, I think, probably can use this technique a little bit. And I think I probably do it a little bit already. Or maybe you could even, um, you know, because as we all know, knitting and podcasts go together like, mm -hmm. um, what's the saying? Uh, love and marriage? Yes, well, wow, we're no, on like, horse and carriage. Of, we're like on a sort of relationship theme today. Next up will be up our uh, relationship advice podcast in which we shoe monogamy. <laughs> where two knits become one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess maybe if there's a project that you, you know, you definitely want the finished item. If it's more of a finished item than a process project, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you could allocate maybe your favourite podcast perhaps this one yeah, we wouldn't be able to say but possibly this one <laughs> could uh, allocate that one to to do whilst you're um whilst you're doing your your least favorite project there hmm. uh we're gonna go with oak mama one the first of the oak mamas um <laughs> a top tip for when you're feeling your motivation sagging give yourself permission to frog the project interesting whether you just took a shortbread or have it sit oh shortbread <laughs> <laughs> Scotland I'm blind. still thinking about short Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you just took a short break in Edinburgh and no, <laughs> I just got back yesterday and I'm still a little bit tired. Or you have it sitting for years in a project bag. That's the beauty of knitting. It's only yarn. You can always start at any point. We start over. Because I don't see anything I knit as a total waste. If I learn something during the knitting, or had a heck of a good time knitting it. Heck of a good time. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's definitely true because one of the fun things about knitting um, that is one of the reasons I enjoy it so much as a craft is that you can just, uh, you can reuse yarn. Mm. So if you've made a thing, and even if you've completely finished it and it just turns out that you don't really wear it or it's, you know, kind of the wrong size or actually it turns out that you thought you liked the colour but you just doesn't suit you for whatever reason or it doesn't go with your coat, um, you can just undo the yarn. And even if you don't use it again, someone else might want it. So it's a kind of perpetually recycling um, craft. It's yeah. amazing. I was thinking after reading this comment, I have a project which, if any of you are dedicated enough to have listened from podcast one, I mentioned it in that podcast. And you're like, oh, what are you knitting? And I'm knitting the firewood shawl, which is oh, from like Pom Pom yeah. 5. And it's stuck in that kind of situation where I didn't know what colour to do. I kind of don't want to undo it because it reminds me of doing the, this is lame, kind of reminds me of doing the first prod, uh, podcast. So it's like, oh, memories. Yeah. But um, it's not going anywhere. I need to, I think I need to get it out and have a good heart to heart with it tonight and sort of really think yeah. about that project. One of my biggest kind of froggings <laughs> was I'd started a beautiful fisherman style uh, kind of jumper or like a big kind of cable jumper mm. in some Schillister DK. And it was a, I think it was a Ver Veronique Avery pattern. Um, and I got, you know, and it was lots of cables, lots of concentrating, very, very pretty. I'd got like the whole body done. I hadn't split for the sleeves yet, but you know, I'd done the kind of mm. heavy lifting of the knitting 
and I just knew I wasn't going to finish it and it sat in bags and moved from house to house for a good few years and one day I was just and it was kind of a moment of like clarity where you're just like I will feel lighter I will feel better if I just rip this out because it won't be weighing on my conscience anymore deep and I and I did rip it out and I still have the yarn and I'm glad that I did it because I did enjoy making it um and it's one of those things where it's just you have to kind of get yourself in the mindset of nothing is wasted no regrets man no regrets <laughs> this is getting deep so I want to end on a slightly lighter note which well this made me really laugh <laughs> which was round rabbit and she said, my top tip for staying motivated is to pick a person, preferably a frenemy, who is a <laughs> prolific knitter and start a secret competition with them. <laughs> Which I think is genius. <laughs> she said, I love the, just the way she talks about, like, we all know someone who seems to knit in their sleep and is constantly cranking out endless gorgeous finished pieces. We usually hate them while secretly wishing we could be like them. <laughs> I know someone like that and I use her to help me keep me motivated. Whenever she posts a picture on Instagram about her latest work, I work that much harder to finish something on my own. I'm petty and competitive, but it works like a charm. Smiley <laughs> winky face. <laughs> and I love this because it's sort of everything else we've talked about so far is so like, hey man, just okay. embrace the fact that nothing is wasted or hey man, just, just give yourself a little yeah. treat. Just work harder. Or hey man, just be more monogamous. And this is just like, no, start a secret competition. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I think this is probably, unfortunately, I don't know what this says about my character, but this is probably the one that would work best for me. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So I think after, <laughs> thanks, by the way, for sending in all these tips, because we did sort of do an open source thing of, hey, what have you guys got to say? And it's really nice to hear that. Um, I think I'm probably going to go with the frogging thing and just, yeah, nice. I might have to sit down and talk myself through with a couple of projects. The thing that I've had for six years, I don't know what's going to happen to that, but... Mm, yeah okay well I think so you're gonna go with that one I don't know who I would start a secret competition with I don't know that I have any frenemies but maybe I'll search one out and if that doesn't work <laughs> then I might do um the kill to craft technique of giving myself more treats <laughs> more treats for everyone <laughs> I just wanted to finish with a top tip because actually I was thinking about this on the train when I was uh traveling today as one does on a train um when you're making one right or making one left I don't know if everyone has this thing. When I think of making one right, the way I remember it is I think right back. And that's because you're putting the needle to the back to pick up the stitch. And then it leads to the right. That's just a side note. I don't know if that's obvious or... Hmm, interesting. Oh yeah, I, I always think of make one right as like irregular make one left. So like make one left is like the go-to. Okay. So left is because that's the You're one I would from the use. Front. Yeah, that's the one I would use when it doesn't matter which which way it leans. Okay. And I think that's kind of the case with most people. Mm -hmm. So it's like make one left is the go-to, and make one right is like this isn't like a useful way of remembering things, but that's just the way I think of it. Is like the kind of like alternate like Waluigi kind of thing. Well, when <laughs> you said it, you Wario. were like <laughs> you said like robot kind of like irregular make one left. <laughs> Engage sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I am Nidbot. Oh no, that's a different person oh, entirely. Oh, oh, I had a fetish. Tell and tell. This is where we tell you guys and each other about what we've been knitting. What have you been knitting, Lydia? I have been making some serious progress on my right angle. Serious progress. Not, serious. not having fun on this. I've just been like, God, serious. no. Very seriously knitting it. Well, I had a good nine hours on trains over the past three or four days. I've just remembered there used to be a club in my hometown called 90 Degrees. And they called it, the tagline was the right angle. Hey. Hey, there's going to be a small minority of people who will be like, I know that club. <laughs> Shout out to those guys. <laughs> um, so I've got most of the front and back finished for that. Very much enjoying my Schillister yarn. Very much enjoying the pattern overall. So that's Sounds all good. Pleasant. It's all sort of good. ticking along. Um, I think I'll have it finished by the time we speak again, Sophie. Wow. By the next time we speak again on mic. Actually, on I'm going to put that. 
a little <laughs> disclaimer. Yeah. Well, a verbal contract is legally binding, so there we go. <laughs> Especially one that's broadcast yeah. to the nation. <laughs> Damn. Um, <laughs> Wait, this is going out? <laughs> and I, well, in the spirit of casting on all the things, mm -hmm. I also cast on um, another pair of the casual fingerless gloves from uh, Take Heart by Fiona Alice in the same yarn as the first pair I made because I gave away the first pair I made. I don't know if anyone remembers that and how wonderfully kind and generous I am, but now I'm gonna make some for myself. Just <laughs> nodding. <laughs> Sophie's like, yeah, all right. Um, also, I made a new Take Heart hat from mm. some lovely yarn that I picked up at Unravel from Town End oh, Alpacas. Like lime green. It is a Lydia color, it is chartreuse. Very good, very good. <laughs> how about you? Well, I'm still chugging along with Garland. I'm being both faithful and monogamous with that, but at the same time casting on a new thing. Ooh, she gets around. So <laughs> I cast on the uh, joke that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, the Terra Shawl by Brooklyn Tweed, which is a nice kind of garter stitch, simple pattern. And I'm using some Midwinter Yarns Perkalanka. Mm -hmm. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. She picks them up at Unravel. Need an extra skein. Guess who's opposite the pom-pom booth at Edinburgh? Oh, Midwinter Yarns. Those like, guys. Tick on my shopping list. Done. So we didn't do uh, our usual signposting at the beginning of this podcast, but what you can expect now is news and reviews. Indeedy. And they sort of rhyme, so we like to put them next to each other. Yes. Yes. Uh, News-wise, um, I will be going to Austin very soon to do the photo shoot for issue 17, which is our <gasps> upcoming summer issue. Drum roll. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I don't even think to tap, I'm like. <laughs> um, so that's very exciting. Um, and also we will be having all the um, spring samples mm -hmm. uh, from the most recent or the currently current issue. <laughs> we'll be at Wild Fibre in Los Angeles. And we'll be there from the 1st to the 21st of April, and we'll be there to coincide with the LA yarn crawl. I like that in your notes you put coincide. Coincide! <laughs> so it's <still> in Edinburgh, <laughs> we cool! <laughs> um, so if you happen to be LA based, then you can see some knits in real life. Hooray! Hooray! And that's kind of it for news. Yeah, news we went to Edinburgh, but you guys, you kind of heard about that. Yeah, we've already talked, talked the hell out of that, I think, so moving well, on. Yeah, when there's more exciting stuff, we'll let you know. We will. Oh, wait, no, there is another exciting what? thing. What? We now do video tutorials. Stop press. <laughs> anyway, we had some chocolate buttons before we started recording this. You can probably tell. Lydia just buys Easter eggs willy-nilly. <laughs> I do. I love them. But uh, yes, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so um, you may have noticed if you keep an eye on our blog or any of the other social media mediums that we frequent. <laughs> A media medium. <laughs> Channel the spirit of social media. <laughs> yeah. I love it. We hope you are in as good a mood as we are, guys. Because You will be by the end of this. We're having a blast. Certainly are. So, um, Sophie Scott, who Hi. is sitting oh, currently to my oh, right, <laughs> she um, has been working on some beautiful... I think we can all agree they're very beautiful knitting oh, tutorial shucks. videos. Yeah. Oh, shucks. What did you do, Sophie? What What are the tutorial techniques for these so, first two? So, there's Kitchener Stitch, and there's also Provisional Crochet Cast On. Mm -hmm. If you recognise my voice right now, you'll recognise it in the videos. Yes, and but in the videos there's the added bonus of seeing Sophie's hands. I know, like painting <laughs> a slight picture as a voice got that down. This is what her hands look like now. Great, interesting. Ooh, so yeah. Very cool. Lovely sponsors of Blue Sky. Thanks very mm -hmm. much to those guys. And yeah. we were using the Spod and Chloe yarn. Mm -hmm. So nice chunky yarn to work with. So you can see it all very clearly. Exactly. This is, well, thanks to Pom Pom and thanks to Blue Skies for doing something very exciting. Um, watch this space. There's going to be more tutorials to sort of coincide with each issue. You'll mm -hmm. sort of see techniques that are relevant to the issues that we're putting out so exactly yeah so check those out if you haven't already and especially if those are techniques that you uh, were not so sure about and we hope that if they were techniques you weren't so sure about that we'll be able to get you merrily on your way Indeed. doing those and getting getting knitting thank goodness I, I understand them now as well so phew. Well, exactly I had to give Sophie many many tutorials before <laughs> That is not true. <laughs> and also, Eli, who does the music for this podcast, he did some nice video music. So it's all the good things that you know and love in one visual format. Yeah, exactly. So check those out. So this podcast, we've been given a book to review, mm -hmm. which is Crochet Yeah! Exclamation mark. <laughs> so this is a project by Kat Golden and Joanne Scrace of the Crochet Project. Indeed. And they were using um, the Koopnitz Socks Yeah! Which is Rachel Koopy's. Yeah? Socked, yeah. 
How many different ways can we say it? Sixty. <laughs> that was a sort of Scandinavian version. Sock and yarn. <laughs> um, so the Kupnitz Socktier, which is very fabulous yarn in very fabulous mm -hmm. colours. Not just for socks. No, indeed. These guys have um, saw the yarn, Rachel's yarn, at Unravel 2015 and were like, oh, we really like this yarn. We really like what you do, Rachel. And she said, well, why don't you design something for me? And she was, they were like, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, exclamation mark. That's pretty much how the story <laughs> went. I'm reliably informed, you know, pretty much. Sounds about right. Um, so it's quite a small little collection, just six or six, not just six, crochet patterns. Um, for those of you who do crochet and those of you who don't, get yeah. the times, guys. You've got to do both. It's not a guide, it's not a crochet how-to, mm -hmm. but they do have some little prompts. It's kind of like a little nudge if you're just starting your first crochet project. Just like, here guys, just ooh, just push that <laughs> push that yarn to the hook. There you go, a bit of encouragement. So yeah, nice projects that they thought Rachel would like because Rachel apparently is learning how to crochet. So Yeah, yeah. So Rachel, I think, learned to crochet perhaps last year um, and, you know, is now... Pretty proficient, I would have thought. She now says, yeah. Yeah. Crochet. Yeah. So Joanne and Kat kind of describe it as a mini book of patterns that Rachel would love to make and wear. A pattern-based fangirl love letter to Rachel. Which is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> and as a side note, Joanne's Grace uh, will have a pattern in the upcoming summer issue of Pompom. <gasps> what a <gasps> scoop. <laughs> so, Sophie, what is your fave pattern from this collection? I'm pretty taken with the Evesham socks, which mm -hmm. are on the front cover. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never thought that I'd ever want to crochet some socks until I saw these babies. Because they kind of remind me of socks that I used to wear at primary school. So they've got like a lacy front, mm -hmm. like a little shell uh, design. So the lacy shell pattern. They're actually the front cover, so check them out. Indeed. And my favourites, well, there's a, a mitten and hat set. So there's the Tenbury hat and the Tenbury mittens and their cat goldens. And they've got a lovely kind of almost ombre effect. Mm -hmm. Quite a sort of simple stitch pattern, but very effective. And they look very, very cosy. So yeah, those are mine. So we say crochet. Yeah. Simple projects, fun yarn. Stuff um, Rachel Cooper would like can only be good. Yeah. While at Edinburgh Yarn Festival, we had a lovely chat to Cecilia Campochiaro, the author of Sequence Knitting. There is a little bit of background echo, because we were in a quiet room, kindly provided for us by Edinburgh Yarn Festival, which had a little bit of atmosphere. So apologies in advance for the slight background noise. So I found myself backstage at the Edinburgh Yarn Festival. I'm thrilled to have grabbed Celia Campari... Campachero. Campachero for a little chat, who is a knitter and the author of Sequence Knitting. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Please correct my pronunciation of your surname. It was... So in American, I say Campachero, and in Italy, it's Campochiaro. It's beautiful. What does that mean again? Brightfield or Clearfield. Gorgeous. So, people uh, will know you for your book, Sequence Knitting, which we've mentioned on the podcast before. We had a little review. I'd like to know in your own words uh, how you would explain sequence knitting. I, I think it's really simple. I just take a sequence of stitches like knit two, purl two, or it could be knit five, bobble, knit five, bobble, and repeat them in some brain-dead way, and fabric happens. But interesting, you mentioned bobbles, but the the book, if you if anyone's had a look at the book, is just knit and purl. Why why do you choose that? Yeah, moment? so the book is all knit and purl. So when I first started, I, I I say in the beginning of the book, I did Stephanie Pearl McPhee's one row hand spun scarf, which is knit two, knit one back, purl on a multiple of four plus two stitches, and you get this beautiful reversible textured fabric. And I started dithering it, and I started doing a lot of yarn overs in the beginning, and I realized that it was just so complicated. I mean, knits and pearls. There's a, almost an infinite number of fabrics you can make with knits and pearls, and the book already weighs five pounds and it's almost 400 pages. So I just had to kind of restrict it to knits and pearls just to kind of get a handle on it. I, I, I'm interested in yarn overs. I'm playing with yarn overs again. Oh, but, nice. But oh, we'll talk about more future things in a moment. I like it. Um, so the book is this unique look into uh, taking the basic elements of knit and pearl and how you can expand on that. What is it that 
interests you about this? What, what was the start of this project? So I, I was doing, I was in a rut. I was doing Noro scarves using uh, Jared Flood's pattern, you know, ribbing scarves oh, in yeah, Noro. I yeah. never get tired of watching the colors change. Uh, and then I, but I did get tired after about five scarves in a row. And I did Stephanie's pattern in a beautiful hand spun. And I just, it was, it was like a miracle pattern to me because there was no front and back side. It wasn't ribbing. And I was getting this really interesting uh, fabric. So I just started dithering it. So it, w it was basically knit three pearl. And mm -hmm. I, so I said, well, what if it were knit four pearl? Or what if it were knit three pearl two? And I just started playing. And instead of taking a scarf project on a trip, I would take swatching on a trip. And I would play with swatches. And after a while, you began to understand the structure of one row patterns and began to see that they had a structure. And then I tried to find uh, a book about one row patterns and I couldn't find one. And I thought, that's just crazy that there's no book on one row patterns. Mm -hmm. Seems like every yarn shop in the world has a one-row pattern in it, but there was no place where you could just find a whole collection of them. So that was really the beginning. Um, so you mentioned about uh, sequence knitting being a, a sort of the pattern that you see and it starts emerging. And it's interesting. It's kind of mathematical in its format. And the way when I read about it, it makes me think of my own experience with knitting. When I first learned to knit, with my paternal grandmother, she was a maths teacher. So. Uh, knitting for me always had, became this physical math where I could see the pattern of algebra or it was a form of geometry. And I'd be interested to know if that is uh, something you've experienced, like the math of the project, and is there, is there a formula, if any, is there an equation, or how does that work? So, so I think the math for sequence knitting is different than normal knitting math. So if you're making a sweater, there's always a puzzle when you measure your own body and you want to adapt a pattern to fit your body, and you have to kind of do the algebra to calculate how many stitches do I want, Especially like for decreases along sleeves and shoulder caps, that can get that can get a little tricky if you don't do it right. Um, but for sequence knitting, it's it's a little bit different math. It's 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 binary math. If you think of knits and pearls only, mm -hmm. you can think of a knit as a zero and pearls a one. And so it's going to behave like zeros and ones. And we we live in a world of computers, so we all know how complicated zeros and ones can get. They get pretty complicated. Uh, and the thing in sequence knitting that's really magical is when you work across a number of stitches that are not even. So if you have six stitches in your sequence and you're on something that isn't six, then you're going to get more interesting things happening than if you're just working on an even multiple. And if you think about it, those extra stitches are like a remainder. So if you were working on a multiple of six plus two, then you've got two extra stitches per row, and in three rows you'll be back to six again. Mm -hmm. So the math is actually pretty simple in terms of the row repeat will just be how quickly you consume enough extra stitches to make another sequence. So the, the math isn't hard, but the, the complexity is really beautiful, and it's, it's really you know how the knits and pearls align. So it's a I, I call it self-aligned fabric. You know you have self-aligned structures in biology that, that can be quite complicated. And you have fractals, but fractals are different because in a fractal you start with some simple rule and you repeat it, but the thing you build is never periodic. But in knitting. What do you mean by periodic? So it. So if you think about like a, think about one of those uh, seashells. Mm -hmm. What's that famous a Nautilus so seashell? The Fibonacci sequence. Of yeah, yeah, the Fibonacci sequence. Like you know, it 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 grows and it grows in a way that's kind of pleasing to mm -hmm. the eye, but it's never really periodic. Yeah. And that's that's kind of special. And in, in sequence knitting, that doesn't happen. You can get really complicated textures, but they always repeat. Mm -hmm. So even though the row repeat could be quite long it will eventually repeat again. So it's not quite chaotic, it's not quite that interesting. It's really pretty simple math, it's just that uh, um, on the scale of, of a texture motif, it can be pretty complicated. Yeah, and I think when you were referring to having the remainder of a stitch, is that, I think in your book you referred that to a serpentine knitting, is that right? Well, there's, so there's, there's four ways that, so you can repeat a sequence probably an infinite number of ways, but there are four ways that go through in the book. So the first is just one row pattern, and in a one row pattern, you're right, you know, every row is the same. So that remainder doesn't really get consumed. Mm -hmm. But in the serpentine method, you you go to the end of the row and the sequence is incomplete and you finish it on the next row. Yeah. And that's where after so if you were working on knit three pearl three on a multiple of six plus two, after three rows you would have taken two stitches three times. Mm -hmm. You'd be back to the beginning again. Right, yeah. So that's exactly right. Okay. It's also true when you knit in the round, because in the round you would you would be adding two stitches per round. So after three rounds you'd also be back to the beginning. Yeah. Oh interesting. So are these terms that you've sort of invented yourself? 
the source of these uh, the sequences? Yeah, I had to. I, I tried. I started from June High's Principles of Knitting mm -hmm. in terms of how classic. Yeah, <laughs> I I think that book is just such a treasure for us. Mm. Just, I mean, every time I go look at it, I learn new things. Um, I'm trying to use her nomenclature on how to describe sequences because uh, sometimes if you have a lot of knits and pearls, it can be hard to see them. So she talks about using numbers in parentheses in a way to, mm -hmm. to make it easier to see. So I tried to follow that. But there really wasn't a language for a lot of this because it hadn't been written this way before. Mm -hmm. So I used a square bracket to denote this, how to repeat the sequence. And then um, you know, the concept of, of the method that you're going to repeat the sequence with, I think that's a you know, one more pattern everybody knows. Yeah. But the other three, I came up with different terminology. Spiral knitting, you know, people have done that for hundreds of years, I think. There's, some of these things are not new. Well, it's the uh, Elizabeth Zimmerman thing of uninventing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't, it's so simple, I simply can't believe no one has, you know, has had, had it done it before. Yeah. But, but why? Of all the stitch dictionaries out there, I haven't found a single one that's systematic. So one of the things I was trying to do was build up a stitch dictionary for these different fabrics in a systematic way, starting with the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I still don't really understand why the stitch dictionaries that we have are all kind of random. You know, they have, they'll have a knit pearl chapter yeah. or a ribbing chapter, but it's just a hodgepodge within those sections. Interesting, yes. So I suppose that leads nicely to my question about your, your working life, sort of as a as a side note to your knitting life, we worked in Silicon Valley, which I think sort of blended a lot with the process of sequence knitting. Although you have had a job change recently, maybe. So maybe yeah. just tell us about that. So for, so for 20 years, I worked for a company that made machines that inspect computer chips. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a wonderful place to be and really interesting because computer chips have been on something called Moore's Law. So Moore's Law says that every 18 months, um, a chip will become both faster and cheaper. Okay. There'll be higher density of transistors on the chip. Mm -hmm. And since the 1960s and until a few years ago, the industry stayed on Moore's Law, which meant it was constantly changing and always you were always on the forefront of the latest and greatest. Mm -hmm. It's gotten so difficult the last few years, people actually say it's starting to slow down. Right, because you're going to get a phone so small, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, can only make, you can only make the structures on the chip so tiny and they're down now to uh, in some cases, single digits of nanometers, which mm -hmm. is you know, it's incredible. You yeah. count the atoms across the yeah. lines now; it's really tiny. Uh, but it's it's really been a wonderful field to work in. And one of the things that is cool is the machine that I used to work on, which was ironically called the Brightfield machine. Oh wow! Same as my last name. Oh wow! So um, they didn't they name it after you? Or? No, no, it was named that long before me. I think it was just one of those happy accidents. But when they saw you on the CV, they were like, "Well, we've got to get her." You know. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I didn't even know. I always translated my name Clearfield, and, and I got the job, and I'd been working there a couple of years, and then an Italian guy joined oh. the company, and he said, you know, you're working on this Brightfield tool, you know that's your last name, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It was meant pretty, to be. It was meant, meant to be. be. But that machine, which I spent many, many of my years of my life working on, this amazing machine, it moves the wafer under a microscope in a serpentine pattern. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that that, was in the back of my mind when I was trying to figure out how can I come up with an interesting way to repeat a sequence to make cool textures. I think that that's was... Really, that's really interesting, like the sequences in your life were sort of echoed within the knitwear. So yeah, everything's related, happy. right? We're all, we're, all, uh, we're all who we are from all the things that touch us. Very true. Lovely phrase, yeah. And my new, so I, I had a wonderful year last year. I left my old company in the spring and uh, took um, over six months off, and, and my book came out in April, so I spent a lot of the year running around talking about knitting. And then I started a new job with a, a related company in November, mm -hmm. and now I work on a different, whole different kind of machine. Now, instead of a machine that inspects the computer chips while they're being made, these are machines that are used to figure out why a computer chip doesn't work. So if you're a company like Apple or Samsung and you've, you've wanted to make a new phone and you just made a brand new chip mm. and it doesn't work, there's a pretty huge panic on why it doesn't work. Sure, yeah. And I now am working on, with a company that makes a, a suite of machines that are used to diagnose and debug those computer chips. Wonderful. Well, I'd be interested to know how these two things balance for you. And also, if you, when did you start knitting and sort of obviously move to a more technological computer-based uh, profession, I suppose. Yeah, so I started knitting as a child, but then I kind of dropped it. Um, I lived in Southern California, where it was always pretty hot, too, which yeah. I now. <laughs> and then in 2000, uh, uh, a friend's daughter-in-law actually got very excited about knitting and wanted to learn how to knit. 
and took us to the first uh, to a Stitches in Oakland when oh, Stitches lovely. was really small. Yeah, and it was just like this huge explosion of knitting happening in the U.S. and we just caught the wave and just became completely obsessed with it and you know build up a huge stash. Yeah, yeah. You had to get rid of it and get a new stash because your tastes change pretty fast. It's interesting that I realized the yarn I bought maybe four years ago. And it's what am I doing with that color? Yeah, I give it away now. I give it. I give it to. There's a, a wonderful woman in our neighborhood who uh, gives away knitting, gives away yarn for people to knit for charity. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And I have friends who love to knit, so I just, you know, right. I only have so much space, and it has to be all purposeful. And then you've got to come to Edinburgh and buy it all again. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been an expensive morning. <laughs> but beautiful stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so it was really in about 2000 when I became really interested in knitting again, and it was it was just it's a nice hobby because you can do it while you're visiting with friends, mm -hmm. and I love I love textiles. I grew up in a family interested in textiles, mm -hmm. and uh, I've just always loved color, design, textiles, and you know fitting in social uh, engagement with your friends and textiles, and also when you go on a trip, you know finding a yarn shop or going to an interesting place gives you a mission on a trip to learn about a new place too. Yeah. So it was really wonderful. And I, you know, if you had told me in 2009 I was going to write a knitting book, I would say you were absolutely out of your mind. And the only reason why I wrote a knitting book was because it was just such a cool idea and I couldn't find a reference. Yeah, because knitting is that, it's really nice that you refer to a sort of binary. So you're saying like the simple one and zero of knitting. But I think people sort of, once they've learned that, they're like, okay, I want to learn the next thing, I want to do the biggest thing, I like the lace, the more complicated, fairer. Yeah. So I think maybe people bypass that first initial step because it might seem too boring or simple. Do you think there's some truth in that? And then... Yeah, I think we're very biased towards stockinette. Mm. I mean, stockinette is a beautiful fabric and it's the drapiest fabric, I mean, I guess lace is drapier, but in terms of a fabric that you'd wear against mm. the body for warmth, it's the, it's the drapiest fabric you can make. But it, you know, it has a lot of properties about it that it has long stretches of the same stitch over and over and over again, yeah. including long stretches of purling, which I find hard to keep my tension yeah. good with. And it curls like crazy. And I think a lot of people spend a lot of their knitting energy engineering problems around stocking it. Like oh, okay. Borders on fabric or you know, how to structure sweaters all in stocking it. You know, the math, you know, math of the sleeve. Mm. And, you can, and in textured work, it's almost all intended to be shown on one side. Yeah. That was the thing on Stephanie's scarf that was so cool, is she treated the front side and back side of the fabric the same. Mm -hmm. So it became ambiguous. The concept of front and back became ambiguous. For a sweater, there's always an inside and outside, or usually an inside and outside. Yeah. But for a scarf, you don't want to have an inside and outside. So that was another little light bulb that went on in my mind, is why do we have to have a back side? Yeah. <laughs> in the music sense. Yeah. Um, thank you. I think, thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, what um, sequence knitting? You saying you start with lots of swatches and stuff like that. What would you suggest people to try once they've done the swatches, sort of um, develop it into? Or what do you? What have you yourself sort of garments, accessories, or is it more just about the process? For you? So I, I think for me, I really like inventing a new fabric, or I'll say inventing a new fabric. Yes, yeah. It's really fun when you. Uh, Put, you know, put something on the needles and you're playing with things and a fabric happens mm -hmm. and then you go try and find anything about where that, did anyone else ever see that fabric before and you realize you found a new fabric yeah. with so, something so simple it's just knits and pearls you're yeah. making that is my happy place that's like the most exciting thing for me and I am not a particularly fast or efficient knitter. And one of the challenges with sequence knitting is it's really easy for me to come up with an idea, mm -hmm. but then to actually knit a piece maybe takes me four months because sure. I'm yeah. not a fast knitter. So I have a team of women who sample knit for me. Mm -hmm. And so I'll spend a lot of time um, swatching and thinking about yarn and color. And once I get it all teed up, I'll hand it off to a sample knitter. And that that's one thing that I think has been really, I've been so fortunate to have a great job in high tech because I've been able to, I've been able to basically fund this project, which has included obviously paying to have the book published, but also to you know get any yarn I want and, and then have people knit for me. Yeah. It's been fantastic. I'm interested to know the reason behind the swatches. There's sort of quite a subtle palette throughout the whole book. Was that a conscious decision? So the book was all done through my stash. Mm -hmm. So so it was really almost no yarn was purchased for the book. That was my. That's kind of what I had. 
and my taste has really changed over the last three years mm -hmm. as I've knit more and more and played with more fabric. And I also, I live in a hot climate, but you know, Edinburgh here, it's really cold outside, it's really hot inside. <laughs> so I've been more and more interested in lightweight fabric and really fine, you know, fine gauge. Mm -hmm. So my needle size is going down and um, I've been really interested in fine yarn. And if you go back three years, a lot of my yarns were worsted weight or heavier. Yeah. And I've almost lost interest in bulkier yarn. Interesting. And part of it's because I'm always hot and I don't really want to wear anything. Well, it's warm, very true. Yeah, yeah it's, it's warm and I'm usually not in a place where I want to be warm. Yeah. And then I think the other thing is, I think that the way fabrics drape is just, you know, the thinner the fabric, mm -hmm. the more beautifully it drapes on the body. And it's pretty hard to make chunky things as flattering as fine things. Everything is more forgiving as it gets fine. Mm -hmm. So where, where were we going with that? Uh, the color palette of the book, sorry. Oh yeah, the color palette. So, so that was out of my stash, but I like neutrals. I like to wear neutrals a lot. Uh, and I like neutrals not because I don't like color, but because they provide a foil for color. And so I like, I like having most things be gray or black uh, or cream. Mm. And then the pop of colors yeah. is, is the fun. Yeah. yeah, but there's some really colorful things in the book too. Oh yeah, true. And, and I, I love playing with color and I love figuring out I particularly love, sometimes you can buy a kit where somebody has put together many, many small pieces mm -hmm. of yarn, and the more the better. And yeah. there's one piece in the book, I think it's roughly 50 pieces of yarn. And that was just you know so much fun to figure out, how do I take this incredible pile of color and make it into something that makes sense? And the sequence knitting is so simple and so structured that to me it provides a framework that you can think within. And so it does, it does help me think about how to handle color. Yeah, it's interesting that sort of the the lens. I think I went to a talk at Bristol Ivy did, and she talks about the lens that people view knits with. And it's interesting to hear your process of it's creating the fabric, not actually creating a thing to wear or use. That's yeah, it's making fabric. It's making fabric. Yeah, yeah. Which is what sequence knitting is, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm thinking. So I'm working on a sequence book, a mm. sequel book. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, a sequence sequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. I'm trying to get beyond just, just scarves and shawls mm -hmm. and, and, and accessories. They're nice ways to shawl fabric, but we do like to wrap our body in this fabric. Sure, yeah. And how can you find ways that are compatible with sequence knitting that also fit on the body in a comfortable way? And sequence knitting is really good at making rectangles, cylinders, triangles. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not good at making setted sleeve caps. Yeah. So how, how can you kind of take the the zen of repeating a sequence and the, the pleasure of that process and put it into making something that's going to actually fit somebody well. So yeah, what's on your needles now? I'm always interested to see what people pack when they're traveling, such as you are. So I packed um, a collection of wool folk, odds, odds and ends, yeah. but I haven't actually cast them on because I've become a little bit obsessed with yarn overs and I've been just swatching. Oh, cool. Well, I kind of might have assumed that might be the case. But um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to make a, a cowl of um, some wolf folk with, mm. with a, uh, I've done quite a few pieces of wolf folk for, for book two and I love Kristen Ford and what she's done with that yarn. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's so soft and so comfortable to Is wear. Is it the, the tinned or the T-Y-N-D? It's the tinned, so yeah. yeah. That's I how I pronounce it. But. So back to my gauge shrinking, it started with the far and I've now gone mm. down and then I was on tinned doubled and now I'm on tinned not three millimeter yeah. needles and it's just a luscious fabric. So one of the questions we always ask on the podcast is uh, there's a Radio 4 series called Desert Island Discs where people hypothetically cast upon a desert isle and they're given eight discs uh, records to take with them. But we yeah. do Desert Island Yarn. So the question is, you're cast upon a desert isle, you have an unlimited supply, it's all the colors you want, but what would you go for? So I'm always hot, and I think of I think of tropical heat on sure. desert islands. Well, it can be. It's your own desert island. Sometimes we have temperate desert islands, especially if we're sending people away with yarns. So okay. Well, if if it's a cold desert island, mm -hmm. um, somewhere maybe north of Russia. Uh, I mean, the wool folk is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Catherine Love has beautiful yarns that she curates from Italy that are really really divine. 
And then I love all of these um, beautiful rustic yarns, you know, like Rachel's yarn mm -hmm. and the, the merino from John Harbinger. Yeah. What well, we call them woolly wool. Woolly Lydia wool. and I have come up with that term first. Woolly wool. <laughs> there, there are definitely limits to how woolly my wool can get. Okay. And, and if it's woolly wool, I mean, I, to me, a hat is better in a woolly wool than yes. something that'll be around my neck. So sure. I kind of, you know, pick the piece. But I, it's hard to choose between all those. But if it's really hot, I've become somewhat obsessed with a silk noil yarn from Japan. Okay. And there's different variations. Um, I've been working with the Ito version, which is called Kinu. And there's a uh, Habu Textiles version, I think it's called Sumiji. Okay, interesting. And, and Avril, which is a Japanese company, has their own version as well. But it's uh, it feels like cotton, drapes beautifully, mm -hmm. and it, you know, it comes in over 40 colors. So that would be if it's if it's a hot desert yep, island. Very good. That's sorted. Yeah. yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you and sequence knitting, or indeed buy the book, where should they go? Well, if um, so, I have a website www.sequenceknitting.com, mm -hmm. and my uh, teaching engagements and my schedule is on the website. And my email, so if anybody wants to get in touch with me, pretty easy to find. Uh, and the book in the U.S. is distributed by Schoolhouse Press, and I think it's it's pretty easy to find through a lot of different outlets. It's been a little more difficult in Europe, but I think by summertime frame it'll be more available in Europe because okay. I'm just about to close on a European distributor, hopefully. Good uh, news. Very, very soon. Yeah. So yeah, if you can get a copy, definitely seek it out. It's definitely worth a look. Um, thank you so much, Cecilia. It's been amazing. Very interesting. Thank you, Sophie. It's been delightful. Thank you. to Cecilia, a fascinating lady. Yeah, what an interesting lady. And if you haven't uh, seen her book, we sincerely suggest that you check it out. We did review it at some point, um, but it's worth look looking it up online. Yeah, thank you again. Okay, so this is part three, or number three, of uh, the newest segment in the POMcast oeuvre, if I can be so bold as to use that term. Um, which is, of course, knitters you should know about. So far, we've been we've talked about Elizabeth Zimmerman. We've talked about Barbara Walker, whose book I now own. So very good. That was very good. And today we are going to talk about Kafe Facet. Now I've heard his name pronounced a lot of ways, mostly by me in the past <laughs> three hour or so when I was trying to but get it right. <laughs> I've been reliably informed by a book actually written by himself, himself, <laughs> himself. Um, Kafe Facet rhymes with safe asset. That's the so way it's you're. Kafe Facet or Kafe. Facet. Café Facet. <laughs> Café Facet. I've heard that as well. Nice. Now, I think he's great. I really love a bit of Café Facet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and we, for those of you who haven't... That's, that's the end of the interview. Mm. I love him. That's the end. Yeah. That's what, all of her research has brought her to one conclusion. Um, and, and why find out why? Just believe what Sophie says. <laughs> um, I think if you haven't heard of him, he can be reliably summed up as really bold and unique and I think if people look at his work now they see a lot of colour, they see a lot of texture, they see a lot of fair art and I don't I think it's hard to convey how remarkable that was at England in the time or even America at the time in the 70s, 80s, how different he was in his approach to colour and knitting. He was, it's a cliche, but he's the Stephen West of his day I think you can say. Mm -hmm. Yep, I think we can we can say that. If Stephen was more kind of Moroccan earthy Scottish heathered styles rather than being like an acid neon pop dream. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he'll morph into, well, no, he'll go his own way. He'll evolve. As Fleetwood Mac would say. He'll evolve into a Pokemon and like there'll be like the next generation, <laughs> a next evolution of Stephen West. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> um, so, Mr. Facet, uh, tell me more about how he perhaps got started in the knitting world. So, he was born in San Francisco in the 19. Uh, 37, just to put it in context. He was actually born Frank Facet. Slightly easier to pronounce. Mm -hmm. um, but he renamed himself as a child after an Egyptian boy character he read in a book called The Boy of the Pyramids by Ruth Fostick Jones. There's a factoid. Wow. That's a fun name to give <laughs> yourself. Kafe. Okay, cool. And uh, so he grew up in um, California near Big Sur, mm -hmm. yes. I've and uh, yeah. His parents built a uh, big restaurant there, 
Um, and it was very kind of bohemian space, very modern, and it was a big draw for a lot of writers, a lot of actors, very interesting artistic people. Mm -hmm. So this was a huge influence on Kaif, on his early life, all these interesting, influential, creative types to cool. sort of set his young mind inspired and mm. whirling. Interesting. So he studied fine art. He was a painter originally, so he was always interested in colour and texture and pattern. And he sort of that started off as a painter, sort of producing... Uh, his art, you know, mm -hmm. kind of capturing his creativity that way. Mm -hmm. And he came to London in the 60s to paint because someone said, oh, you've got to go to London. It's really cool there. It was pretty groovy. So he settled down in the 1960s. I mean, what a cool place to be in. Swinging, swinging 60s. 60s. Swinging 60s, as they say. <laughs> so Cave settled down there and he was still trying to like make it as a painter. Um, and then he ended up going on a trip to uh, Home Mill in uh, Inverness. Scotland! Yeah, what a good link. <laughs> um, and here's a quote from Mr. Cave himself. Uh, the lichen-covered stones rested beside rushing streams of peat-stained amber water. Bracken and strawberry tones mixed with purple and lavender heather covered the rolling hills. Ooh. So I'm painting you a picture here of Cave's inspiration that he mm. saw. He saw the colours and then he saw the yarns. They went to this mill and he saw all the colours, the inspiration that he'd seen in the landscape. So he bought all the colour and then he was sat on the train back to London and he was like, I've got to knit it. I've got to make something with this. But he couldn't trust anyone to make it. You know, he couldn't trust anyone else to convey the colours that he'd seen yeah. in the landscape. Mm -hmm. So the lady, he was sat opposite. He was like, he, he'd been travelling up with her. He's like, do you know how to knit? And she's like, I do, actually. So by the time he got to London, as we reliably know, train to uh, Scotland. It's got Quite a long journey. It's got some and good knitting time. then would have been much longer as well. Yeah. <laughs> Coal or something, I don't know. <laughs> no, it was just pulled by elk. <laughs> Um, and by the time he got back to London, he knew how to knit. Wow. He made his first design, a little raglan cardigan mm -hmm. with all these colours mixed into it. And he was uh, involved, uh, had friends in the fashion world, uh, being a hip, cool, groovy young person Swing of the 60s. 60s guy. Uh -huh. He knew someone who was involved with Vogue and showed them the cardigan. They were like, this is great. You should show it to Judy Bitten, who's doing Vogue knitting. And she saw it and she was like, this is the future of knitting. Can you do Fair Isle? And he was like, what's Fair Isle? And she's like, oh, it's when you do lots of colours in the same row. And apparently he was like, how do you do that? So we then learned. And yeah, that was kind of the start of his knitting career. Wow. So he went from like not a knitter to a knitter working with Vogue in the space of, it sounds like a very short space. I know. Time. It's amazing. Like he kind of had this amazing right place, right time yeah. kind of catalyst point because then he started working with Missoni. So mm -hmm. amazing knitters. Mm -hmm. They'd seen his design, his second design that was published in Vogue, which mm. was an amazing kind of diagonal striped coat. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, come work with us. And then he started working with Rowan and started developing colors with them because he was trying to find yarns that could convey his color. I think that's the most important thing about Cave Facet. He, he loves colour, he loves pattern. It's all about playing with those colours together because most knitting patterns at the time, you know, you maybe have five colours, six colours at tops. Mm -hmm. And he was saying like, no, 20 colours, get those chalky pastels, get some cherry reds in, some saffrons, you know, playing around with all those colours. <laughs> that was kind of revolutionary and kind of injected like a huge kind of vibrancy into the knitting scene at the time. Wow. What a guy. Yeah, I'm quite excited by him. So. I can tell. This is great. Okay, so tell me more. So um, I think when I think of Kay Facet, I think of, yeah, all the big splashy colours uh, and maybe that's his, like, 80s phase, Yeah. Yeah. So, like we are saying, talking about 60s, 70s, he started doing some needlepoint as well. Mm. He was kind of involved with projects with that. But the 80s, I think there was this huge influx in hand knitting in Britain as well. And the fact that Rowan kind of took off at that time and that was kind of like a new style of knitting. Mm -hmm. um, and for him, he kind of was able to channel all his painting kind of urges of colour and pattern and put it in a very textural, textiled way. Yeah. Uh, for him, it was a uh, quote here. Can you hear the quote marks, guys? <laughs> it's knitting, uh, it's addictive force had grabbed me and released so much creative energy, it calmed me down at the same time. Wouldn't everyone benefit from these effects? I envisioned masses of people turning to this simple craft. And he went to do his first book, which was Glorious Knitting. Glorious is such an underused word. Exactly. So one of the interesting things he was working on that, he was like, no, I want like double page spreads of, you know, full bleed right up the edge. And people were like, no, you're making a coffee table book, not a knitting book. And that's what he wanted. He was like changing the scene, man, putting out 
books <laughs> with colour. Whoa! Like a sort of cross between an art book and a knitting book. Yeah, exactly. Which, again, I think we're trying to convey why he's important because he was sort of changing this style. Yeah, how people yeah. maybe had seen knitting like, here's a man with a pipe. And he was like, no, let's get quilts everywhere and let's have broken pottery and that's my inspiration for this colour and yeah. big chintzy floral rugs and tulips and... I'm getting very excited about it. <laughs> Um, okay, so so he had a TV series. Indeed, so Glorious Knitting went on to a TV series called Glorious Colour, which kind of was one of the things that established him as a household name. Okay. Um, and then he went on to have an exhibition at the V&A, and wow. he was the first living textile artist to have uh, such a an exhibition. And it toured wow. nine countries, and that was oh in like mid-90s, I think that happened. So. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. So, are there any kind of classic knits of his that I might recognise? I think there's kind of motifs that are very kaif mm -hmm. in their style. There's like a tapestry leaf uh, motif, which is sort of leaves, like a, almost if you're looking at like an autumn floor. Like tessellating leaves. Yeah, almost. And then the colours are changing throughout each leaf. Of course, there's lots of colour. <laughs> um, there's also a poppy motif that he's okay. quite renowned for, mm -hmm. which is, again, like a big kind of flat, blousy poppy. And that's kind of changing on a blousy. Such a good word. Like a deep background with its like kind of pops of colour. Mm -hmm. And also there's a paperweight style of... Um, uh, it's like, you know, like the mille fure? Is that the ones I'm yeah. thinking of? Like yeah. the glass paperweights where mm -hmm. you have lots of little tiny uh, glass colours, the pebbles almost. Yeah. He sort of blows that up into another design, you know, taking that circles and pops of colour. That's mm -hmm. a very kind of cave look that you people might know. So I think, so he's a colourful guy. He's a colourful guy. Ways. If I've somehow in my overexcitedness have explained how much, how like excited, if you love colour and if you don't, you must know. If you don't know about Kay, if you here's a knitter you should know about, guys. <laughs> oh, and if you don't know, he's also a ceramicist, a painter, and a needlepoint, uh, uh, mm -hmm. and a quilter. So there's something for everyone there. If you want to read more about Kay Fassett, I highly recommend the book uh, Dreaming in Colour, which is where I got most of my enthusiasm from this podcast. Great! And now to our final segment, the least knitting related, but the, possibly the most relatable <laughs> of all our segments, in which we choose a topic, often food-based, and both choose our top three items uh, under whatever umbrella we are standing. Wait, is it top three umbrellas? I didn't do the <laughs> Top three umbrella shapes. I like cocktail umbrellas. <laughs> I didn't even think about those. No. Um, thanks to everybody who sent in suggestions on the Ravelry group. We always love your suggestions. Cocktails was one of the suggestions, which I unfortunately had to veto because my knowledge of cocktails is not nearly good enough at the moment, but I endeavour to do lots of research <laughs> for you, good listeners. Over the next month, at least, possibly the next few months, I will try as many cocktails as I can and I will get back to you with a, with a top three. But for today, there is an item that I think we probably both enjoy on a daily basis. Is that correct? Not knitting. <laughs> no. It's cheese. Cheese. <laughs> um, which, uh, I love cheese. I had a sort of slight crisis when I had to decide only three. So I'm, well, I hope you resolve this crisis because I want to know what cheese you like. <laughs> well, that's good. That old, <laughs> like you're going to have to listen to me talk about it for the next few It sounds minutes. like an old 50s love song. This, I want to know. Okay, so, right, I feel a little bit nervous about this because there's going to be so many cheeses that I've missed out. I'm sorry, guys. They're going to feel sorry. very upset, of course. I could yeah. do like a top 20 on this. Whoa, no, we don't have time. We're running out of time oh, as it fine. is, Lydia. Fine, okay. At number three, I have... Feta cheese. Now. What could be better? <laughs> what could be better than feta? I eat feta cheese. I go through like a block of feta cheese. I was going to say almost every day and then I thought actually a better indication of how much I eat is like at least a block a week. Realistically, Whoa. probably two. Whoa. Because Greek salad is one of my staple foods. Like when I don't know what to take for lunch, I make Greek salad. Put some chickpeas in or something to make it a bit more bulky. I mean, my love of feta cheese is probably highly influenced by the part of London that I live in, which is North London, which is full of Turkish and Greek shops, which I love, because I also love olives. So feta cheese mm -hmm. is there at number three. Uh, at number two, 
I've got a classic. I'm going for a, a mature cheddar, mm -hmm. not one of the extremely mature ones that's crumbly because they're not good for melting. So if I'm only allowed one cheddar forever and ever, basically I have to have cheesy chips and none of the other, <laughs> none, of, <laughs> none of the other cheeses um, will do. And so cheddar it is. Uh, I think we can all agree that we know what cheddar is. So moving swiftly on to number one. Number one, come on. It's gotta be a good one. Halloumi. Halloumi. <laughs> halloumi. So I don't eat meat. And halloumi cheese is like bacon. It's like salty it's the cheese and you delicious. Can grill. It's, the che it's the cheese you could grill. And I find it to go well with almost anything. It's savory. Like and bacon. It's chewy. Like bacon. Like bacon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just that it can't, it can do no wrong in my eyes. Uh, number three, I'd have to go with the cheddar. Okay. Because I... When we were discussing this beforehand, you were like, but how can anyone not include cheddar? I think something very mature. Also, I've had it before when it's really like good cheese, where it almost has crystals in. Have you ever yes, had that? Yeah, it's That's yummy. pretty good. That mm. kind of gives an intensity of the flavor. Mm. My recommendation there. Number two, a lot of people feel very jaded and uh, confused when I mention this one. I've tried to sell it to people before and they're not on it, but... Uh, <laughs> It's Wensleydale with apricot in it. So cheese and fruit, the yep. ultimate combo. I love Wensleydale. Mm -hmm. I don't like fruit in my cheese. Number one. She's forgotten. Oh yeah, that's it. I've forgotten because it's not actually like, it's like almost like a memory of a cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I've only eaten this once and it was at a market somewhere, like a farmer's market, somewhere in Lincoln or somewhere in my youth. And it was Marmite cheese. Ooh. And the guy gave us a little bit to try. He was like, try this. And it was amazing, kind of, you know, like the, the yeast, yeast sharpness mm. of Marmite, mm. that weird kind of undescribable taste, but with the kind of lovely milkiness of cheese. And my mum was like, great, we'll buy some of that. And then we completely forgot about it. And by the time we got back, which was maybe a couple of days later, the cheese was not good. <laughs> Sweaty cheese. Yeah, and it was like, yeah. oh, it really hadn't, it might even, be, anyway. <laughs> the moral of the story, the cheese was not good, but I've just, that one little taste of that amazing Marmite cheese, which was by this, you know, amazing dairy farmer that I will never ever probably find again. That is it. That's the so that's the pure cheese memory that I have. I think we've told you everything we possibly know about knitting and cheese for this month's podcast. Indeedy. Um, so thank you all for listening and we hope that you feel part of our community whether yeah. or not you were at Edinburgh. Um, and we look forward to chatting to you again next month. Thanks, guys. We love you. Bye! Bye. Podcast is produced by Lydia Gluck and Sophie Scott. Lots of help from Eli Block, who created the original music for the show. For more Eli-related music, go to goodgirlandthebadtimes.com. Big thanks to Megan, the co-founder and editor of Pom Pom, and to our interviewee, Cecilia Campochiero. Thanks again to Chalamar for sponsoring this podcast. And of course, we'd like to say a huge thank you to all you Pom Pom buyers, subscribers, and listeners. Send any feedback or suggestions to podcast at pompommag.com. And don't forget to join our thread on the Pom Pom Ravelry group.